Hi, I'm Jackie, and today we begin a series called Power, Vulnerability, and Leadership. These are lofty concepts, but as women, we know they impact us personally. I'd like to see what God has to say about them. Power, vulnerability, leadership. And I want to do that by digging into the stories of four women in Scripture. And today, we're going to be talking about Deborah, the fact that she is actually God's plan A. Welcome to the Jackie Always Unplugged podcast, where we're having off-the-record conversations. I'm Reverend Dr. Jackie Reese, founder and president of the Marcella Project. As a pastor, preacher, and thought leader, I've walked with women of faith for decades and had thousands of conversations about what women encounter solely because they are women. At work, family, their faith, with relationships, sex, the church, their bodies, and Jesus. On this podcast, we're going to be asking hard questions, dealing with real issues, and revisiting scripture with a new lens. These conversations are going to put words to your female experience. They're going to ennoble you as Jesus intended and encourage you to bring your full self to the table. It's here we're going to reshape our view. Well, welcome back. I know many of you, you're gifted leaders at home, in your community, at your company, in the church. You're gifted women. You're gifted leaders. And so this idea that women shouldn't lead, saying that seems a bit archaic to you, right? We know, we've, we've heard more and more how important it is that women be at the leadership table. Like Ford's magazine says, companies with higher female participation at board level exhibit higher returns and payout ratios. And the World Bank said that women are the best investment for an economy. And study after study shows in developing countries when a woman gains control over spending, less family money is devoted to instant gratification, like drinking and gambling, and more for education and starting small businesses. We know this. We've started to recognize that families, communities, companies fare better when women are at the leadership table with men. And I think that model is exactly the model we see in the beginning, in the garden. God's A-team, male and female, carrying out God's work on earth like God did. He said we're to do it in his likeness. Man and woman, I think, is God's kingdom strategy, his unstoppable force for good in the world. Carolyn Custis James coins it the blessed alliance. I love how Carolyn uses words. She's a beautiful writer. And here's what she says about what it means to be the blessed alliance, what we see in Genesis 1 and 2. She said, God designed the world to stand on two load-bearing walls. You don't have to be an engineer or a building contractor to know not to tamper with load-bearing walls knocking down load-bearing walls, and, well, you bring down the roof. The first load-bearing wall is God's relationship with his image-bearers. Without this vital relationship, we are cut off from our life supply. We're homeless, stranded souls in the universe, left to guess who we are and why we're here. The second load-bearing wall is called the blessed alliance between male and female. Having created him male and female image bearers, God blessed them and then spread them before the global mandate to rule and subdue on his behalf. According to Genesis, male and female relationships are the kingdom's strategy designed to be an unstoppable force for good in the world. This means the enemy's first assault in the garden was beyond brilliant. One lethal blow and both load-bearing walls collapsed. 
See, I told you she was really good with words, isn't she? I believe that's what we see in Genesis 1 and 2. And then in Genesis 3, we see the establishment of what we call patriarchy, father rule. This social system basically becomes the rule. Patriarchy is a system that privileges and empowers men over women. And Carolyn so beautifully reminds us patriarchy is the fallen backdrop of the Bible, meaning it's the context in which the stories take place and were written down. It is the background of the Bible, but it is not the message of the Bible. My husband works in South Sudan, and it is a place where there's really high patriarchy. And, and I've traveled to other places where that is the case. And, and I know that you have too. You know of other places where there is high patriarchy. But we in America, we've shifted. We've gone from patriarchal society to what we would call maybe a post-patriarchal society, meaning we are less skeptical of women's intellectual acumen and leadership abilities. You know, when Jesus got up, he redeemed all things. His life, death, and resurrection provided a pathway back to what God intended. But it seems to be taking us some time to actually live out this kingdom strategy, this unstoppable force for good. The evil one is working overtime on this pillar, this load-bearing wall he wants to take apart and keep apart. Just consider that. Think about how it has shown up, how ruptured it has been between male and female in the past. And then what about now? What about for you personally? What about as a nation? Now let's look globally. Yeah, if we aren't careful, we could start to believe that the evil one is actually winning this one. In America today, we have women leaders. Many of you are just that. Just look at how many women got elected to Congress in 2018. The most that we've ever had in history, 117 women. I mean, that's inspiring. That's awesome. We are moving. But we've still got work to do. We only have 24% of C-suites occupied by women, and there are only 25% of female CEOs in the Fortune 500. And I don't know if you know this, but within our conservative faith communities, 90% of top leadership positions are filled by males. 90%. Pause at that stat for just a moment. Now let me ask you, how do you think that has impacted what's taught? For example, men rarely teach on the stories of women in Scripture. We know that. And when they do, they usually teach them from a perspective of a damsel in distress who's rescued by the prince on the white horse. How does 90% male leadership impact us as a church as a whole and then us as women, which are between 50 to 60% of the church? What do we hear? How are we taught? What is said about what's taught? I have sat in the pews often and listened to illustrations from the pulpit, and I rarely hear your story. You know, the story of the female CEO or small business owner, lawyer, engineer. We just don't hear much about her, whether that's spoken or unspoken. Her story is missing. One of the ways I've heard leadership about women taught is that, you know, God will let women lead, and, God, and women can lead, so long as they aren't leading men. 
I've even heard one theologian say that if he got lost, he wouldn't ask a woman for directions. In fact, he'd go to see if he could find her husband first, again, assuming that all women are married, of course. He would look for her husband first because he didn't want to put her in a position of leadership over him. Yes, ladies, I have heard that. It's in our churches. We've heard these kinds of things. And then from this past post-patriarchal lens, we've heard pastors and theologians tell us that God will use a woman to lead if there's no man to be found. That's exactly what I heard when I went to India this past summer. I was invited to go and train a, a group of female church planters. These women had come to faith out of Hindus, and they were so excited about Jesus. And they just started telling everybody else about Jesus. And lo and behold, they started planting these churches, these house churches. And at first, this miss- missions organization in America was all about it, like all about supporting them. Very excited to pe- see people come to Jesus. Me too. And then the women got a little too successful. Like, they started planting over a 1,000 house churches, a 1,000. And now the question came back to the missions agency back here in the States. Are, are, we, like, are we okay with women leading those churches? That's why I was invited, to give these women confidence through the scripture that God had given them the right to lead in these house churches. Which takes me to the story of Deborah, found in the book of Judges. How many of you have heard her story couched in the context that she's God's plan B, that God uses a woman to lead when there's no good man to be found? I suspect many of you have heard that, that version, right? It's, it's actually been the prevailing interpretation of Deborah and Barak since, I don't know, until actually very recently. But what if the story is less about women being God's plan B and more about, well, giving us a glimpse of what the Blessed Alliance actually looks like in real life. Deborah lived in a high patriarchal society. In most instances, the law classified a woman as property rather than person. This is historical fact. Along with the fact that there are only 14,000 words in the scriptures, Old Testament, New Testament, and the Apocrypha, which are the 14 books found in the Catholic Bible, but not in the Protestant. Don't get too hung up on it. 14,000 words in the scriptures are spoken by women. Not stories about women, but their actual words that they spoke. Women's words written down for history, for us to hear. In history, mostly educated men chose what events to write about and how that event would be interpreted, what significance or meaning it would be given. And as you can guess, women's lives, events and experiences, rarely chosen. All of those facts make Deborah's story, her words, all that more profound. As I mentioned, her story is found in the book of Judges. Judges is in the Old Testament. It's set at a time after the Israelites had finished their 400 years of slavery and their 40 years in the wilderness, and they had conquered the land, and then the text tells us they had forgotten their God. And during that time of the Judges, there were like these cycles, And these cycles, basically, I'm quoting Judges 17.6 and Judges 3.9, all the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes, so God handed them over to oppressive nations, and then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, and the Lord raised up a rescuer to save them. That was the cycle. You need to hold on to that. That's the cycle. 
And don't forget what it said in Judges 3, 9, right? That he raised up a rescuer, meaning a judge, to save them. Because in chapter 4, we're going to find the Israelites in the middle of one of those cycles, and that's where we meet Deborah, the one God raised up to save his people. Notice he did that before we ever get to the conversation between Deborah and Barak, the conversation that we've been told gives us proof that he abdicated and therefore God was willing to use a woman. Yeah, before that conversation, we see that God chose her to lead, to rescue, to save his people. So we're in Judges 4, 1 through 3. And it states, and by the way, I'm never going to get these ancient words right. So like these are weird names. And if you can't say them, don't worry. I can't either. And I have two seminary degrees. After Hehud, I don't know that's how you say his name, death, the Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight. So the Lord turned them over to King Jabin of Hazar, a Canaanite king. The commander of his army was Sisera, who had 900 iron chariots. He ruthlessly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years and then the people, the, the Israelites cried out to the Lord for help. We go on to read, Deborah, the wife of Lephidoth, was a prophet who was judging Israel at the time. She would sit underneath the palm of Deborah between Raham and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites would go to her for judgment. Take note, the text tells us that Deborah is both a prophet and a judge. Why is that important? Well, because in Israel, there were three offices of leadership. You know, we have three branches of government. They had three offices. And that was prophet, priest, and king. And during Deborah's time, there were no kings. So judges acted as like this less formal version of that office. So what we see here in the text is that Deborah held two out of the three offices. Offices of power and leadership. She is both a prophet and a judge. Only two other people can claim that. Two other people in scripture, Moses and Samuel. I'd say Deborah's in good company. Jesus, by the way, held all three of those offices. Let me just give you a, like a quick definition. It's not the only definition, but the quick definition of prophet, priest, and king. A prophet was a person who spoke on God's behalf to the people. Not just foretelling future events, but also calling people into obedience. The prophet spoke for God. A priest was a person who spoke to God on the people's behalf. A person who showed the people who God is and how God acts. A person who testified to God's character. A king was a person who led the people. Not just in enforcing justice based on the law, but the king also led his people or her people into battle. So those are the definitions. Again, they're not the only ones. It's not the only way to classify these offices, but I kind of like them. And I think it's kind of interesting. Jesus possessed all three of these offices, and the scripture tells us we're to be like him. So I think it's a really fun question. I don't know how much validity it actually has, but I think it's a good conversation question. Well, probably only with your Christian friends because non-Christians would be like, what are you talking about? You're crazy. But it's a fun question to ask, which do you most emulate, king, priest, or prophet? Right? Which, which one are you most? Again, it's kind of a fun conversation starter, but probably with only a particular kind of friend. Okay, let's move on. Again, I want to remind you that in Judges 3.9, it said that God raised up the leader. God had already chosen Deborah to lead his people, 
not just to lead women, by the way, or to lead boys before they hit a certain age. The text says that she sat and she judged, and people, meaning men and women, came to her for judgment. Deborah hears the cries of God's people, and she does what judges did. She kicked into her role as military commander-in-chief, and she summons Barak, who's the general of the troops. We see this in verses 6 and 7. One day she sent for Barak, who lived in Kadesh, and she said to him, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, commands you. Call out 10,000 warriors from the tribes, and then she goes on to name them, and I will call out Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, along with chariots and warriors, to the Kishon River, and there I will give you victory over him. And then verse 8 says, he interrupts and says, if you go with me, I'll go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. And then in verse 9, she says, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, some translations say because, and so there's an implication there that there's a cause and effect. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. And this, this is where men have concluded who come from a patriarchal background and lens, have concluded that the reason that he's not going to get the glory is because he abdicated leadership to Deborah. He asked her to go with him and lead. She's basically God's plan B, or so we have been taught. That's the traditional view. That's the traditional interpretation that is held about Deborah's story for a very, very long time. Now, let me ask you this. Why do you think that was the common view until just recently? And if that's a question you'd like to dig into deeper, you could always go over to our Jackie Always Unplugged um, Facebook group and, and have a dialogue with us about that because it's an interesting question, isn't it? Why was it the traditional view for so long and suddenly it's not any longer the most only traditional view available to us? I think one of the reasons is because of whose eyes have been on the text. Who's had the ability to not only learn about scripture, but then interpret it, give it meaning and um, significance. For centuries, those who've had the privilege to examine scriptures, you guessed it, were mostly males, white males of Western descent, who inherited a worldview that women were less than men. They saw women from a patriarchal lens, They couldn't help it. It's just the culture in which they swam in. Several years ago, I um, attended this conference called Evangelical Theological Society. It's a weekend where professors come together from all over the world, from the conservative evangelical tradition, and they read a a, a paper uh, that they have been studying, like a, a particular word in a verse, or maybe a theology, or a particular concept, and they would like study it for like, I don't know, years and then come up with this paper, and then show up at this gathering, and they would read their findings. 700 papers were read that weekend. 700. I was in heaven. You know what? Only seven of those 700 were by women. Yeah, only seven. The rest, mostly white, older male of Western descent. When we put different eyes, different gender, different socioeconomics on the, on the scriptures, on the sacred text, what happens? We start asking questions that weren't being asked, right? That's what happens. But let's be honest. Women weren't even allowed into conservative seminaries until the 1970s, so it's taken time for us to catch up. 
for us to have time to become as educated as many of these white males who've had their eyes on the text for generations. Remember I said we've shifted, right, from patriarchy to post-patriarchy, but we're less skeptical about women's intellectual acumen and leadership abilities. We've shifted culturally, and that has forced us in the Christian faith in America to shift, to ask some questions we weren't previously asking about female leadership. And some theologians along the way have put on new glasses, so to speak, and have landed with a different interpretation than the traditional one that has held for so very, very long. And one of those theologians is Ron Pierce. He presents this interesting argument about Deborah and Barack's conversation, one that if it's accurate, it shifts Deborah from God's plan B to plan A. He said Barack interrupted Deborah, that Deborah was planning on saying a woman will get the honor, but she didn't get to it because he interrupted. So listen to it this way. One day she sent for Barack and she said to him, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel commands you. Call out 10,000 warriors. I will call out Cicero to the Kishon River and then I will give you victory. And before she continues, he, he interrupts her. If you go with me, I'll go. But if you don't go, I won't go. And then she finishes. I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Pierce's position, I think, has merit. Now, why do I say that? Because this idea of Barack abdicating, of being passive or lacking courage, just doesn't fit the rest of the evidence that we have about him. For example, Deborah summoned Barack. He was located closer to the front lines, and so she needed his expertise and insight because she was actually 70 miles inland. He comes. In fact, he walks 70 miles on foot to get to her. Why would a military leader who was shamed by being underneath a woman's leadership do that? When I think about him walking 70 miles, I think about the time and the determination as if there was something at the end of it that was worth it. And I think we find out what was worth it by what he said in verse 8. If you go with me, I'll go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. Now, when we hear him say that, that should hearken us right back to Moses and God in Exodus 33. Right after the incident of the golden calf and God is really angry with the Israelites, and he told Moses he wasn't going to go with them any further. They're there in the desert. I mean, there's nothing there, no water, no food, and God's been providing and guiding and comforting through this trek through this barren place. And he says, I'm not going any further with you guys. And listen to what Moses says in 33.15. If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. I like the way the New Living Translation says it. Moses says, if you personally don't go with us, Don't make us leave this place. Can you hear it? Hey, like, like we need you with us, God. We can't do this without you. If we're going to survive, like, we need your presence. We need your power. We need you with us. What's a prophet supposed to do? Right? Speak on God's behalf to God's people. What's a king supposed to do? Lead God's people into battle. Barak's not cowardly here. He's smart. He's not going into battle without God's presence or power. And that means having Deborah with him. And they 
together go into battle. He gets his men prepared. They're ready. And then they wait for Deborah. Remember the one who hears from God? To give them the green light. And she does in verse 14. She basically says, get ready. Today is the day. And the battle ensues. And I was thinking about that. How he doesn't seem to be emasculated, less of a man, shamed by needing or wanting or serving alongside a strong female leader. When I think about how we socialize boys, particularly when it comes to being, quote unquote, beat out by a girl, I marvel at what God is showing us here in this passage. Don McPherson is a, was a quarterback in the NFL and a Canadian football league guy and a And he's now giving, in his later years, um, his work to reconstructing masculinity. And he says, we don't raise boys to be men. We raise them not to be women. In other words, men define themselves not by who they are, but by who they aren't. And one of the most emasculating things for a boy is to be called a girl. Worse, to to be beaten out by a girl. You know, how we raise boys in this culture isn't much different than how we teach them in the church. Both in culture and church, we teach men that they are, among other things, to be strong and independent and self-reliant, able to provide, unemotional and decisive. Pastors and theologians teach that men are to be, are by design, more suited for leadership. They're more analytical and logical and therefore suited to protect doctrine and preach from the pulpit. And I was thinking about how this kind of socializing and, um, and outright teaching How does that impact us to live out this blessed alliance in our jobs, in our homes, community, the church? I mean, what do you think? How do do you think we do this? How do you think it impacts what Carolyn calls the blessed alliance? I don't know, like, has it shown up in your marriage at all? How about at the workplace? What about the place you worship? I've heard and seen and experienced the tension, the tiptoeing around, and even pain it's caused for both men and women. And I know you've experienced it. Brock, he he doesn't seem emasculated, less than a man, shamed, cowardly. In fact, in Hebrews 11, it tells us that he's a great man of faith who conquered kingdoms. This is a man who went into battle with 10,000 foot soldiers against 900 iron chariots like 10,000 foot soldiers against tanks, not a fair fight. This doesn't sound like a weak man to me, a cowardly man, a passive man. And when the battle takes a turn and Cicero is on a run, Brock pursues him. Again, doesn't sound weak, cowardly, less than a man to me. And nowhere do we see God scolding or punishing Deborah and Brock for doing this some kind of a role reversal. Like, I'm not happy with how you flipped my God-given design for male and female, so now I'm going to withhold blessings. Nope, we don't see that. Instead, in verses 23 and 24, we read where Israel becomes stronger and stronger until there is ultimate defeat. And then if we turn to chapter 5, we have their victory song. Some translators attribute that to Deborah, but I actually think it's both of them singing it. Listen to their opening phrase. It says this, Israel's leaders took charge and the people gladly followed. Praise the Lord. Israel's leaders took charge and the people gladly followed. Praise the Lord. This sounds like the Blessed Alliance to me. It sounds like they've got it. 
that they together are God's kingdom strategy, an unstoppable force for good in the world, male and female, in it together, all out together. I like my husband's tattoo the way it says it, whatever it takes. I was sharing this concept of the Blessed Alliance with a Christian woman who's led multiple Christian nonprofits. And very sadly, she said to me, Jackie, that sounds lovely. I've just actually never seen it in real life. Yeah, that's a real sad statement, isn't it? And I have to admit, the beauty of the Blessed Alliance, we don't see it often. It, it isn't the norm yet. I do think the evil one has worked really hard to keep this load-bearing wall from being erected. And I wonder, what's he so afraid of? What does he know that maybe we don't quite grasp yet? That there's something mysteriously powerful about this strategic kingdom team? We don't see it often, she's right. But we do have glimpses of it in the scriptures and in real life. I think Barack and Deborah are an example in the scripture. So is Boaz and Ruth, Jesus and the women that he hung out with. We have examples in the scriptures. What about in real life? Who do you know that exemplifies God's vision for the Blessed Alliance? Can you think of anyone? I have to admit it's, it's not the norm. And in light of how we raise our boys and girls and how the church teaches about biblical manhood and womanhood, we shouldn't be surprised. It may not be the norm, but I've seen it. I've lived it. I've actually experienced it in my marriage. I've seen it in Ben and Amy's marriage and Greg and Krista's marriage. I've seen it happen in marriages. And I've seen it in ministry where men and women work side by side, like my working beside Ray and Pete. And I've watched men from afar, like Scott McKnight and Mitch Little, they have advocated, slid over, made room for women at the top leadership tables. And women, women have shared their stories with me at work, home, church, community. You know, it might actually be uplifting, worshipful, actually, if we could go to Jackie Always Unplugged Facebook group and post our thoughts about where we've seen it happen. We need to be encouraged that this really does occur here on earth. And by the way, if you want to dig into this series deeper than what we're going to do here in these episodes, you can go to the marcellaproject.com and register for our online Bible study because we have lots of scriptures to dig into and questions that are being asked and conversations being had. Yeah, we've seen it. I've seen it. I've lived it and experienced it, this blessed alliance. And, and when you see it, live it, and experience it, it changes us, doesn't it? Something in us knows we have tasted something good, that we have experienced a bit of what's, a bit on earth of what is already in heaven. We, we know this. God has given women and men the, the cultural mandate to rule, subdue, and fill the earth as co-laborers. And we all do this in our own one-of-a-kind design. And what I do know is many of you out there, you're leaders, you're badass leaders, and I want to say to you, sisters, keep strong, keep marching on, rise up, as it says in Judges 5.21, march on my soul and be strong, keep leading us. And then there's others of you, I know because I sit with you, and you know you can lead. You know you're gifted to lead. 
and not just in small ways. You know God's called you to something big, like leading a company or possibly this country. You can feel it in you, but you're holding back. And I want to say to you, sister, rise up. March on my soul. Be strong. And some of you, you live in the blessed alliance. Show it off. We need more and more examples of what God intended from the beginning. Speak about it. Let others see it so others can be it too. To you, I say, rise up. March on my soul. Be strong. And to all of us, we're in a little bit of a battle right now, aren't we, with this pandemic? At times, it can feel like 10,000 foot soldiers against 900 iron tanks. I know. But let us not forget God's power and presence is with us. Every day, may we wake up and hear the sweet whispers of our Jesus say to us, rise up, march on my soul, be strong, for I am with you. Hey, if you've enjoyed this conversation, then hop on over to themarcellaproject.com and sign up for our email or check out some of our other resources. You can also find me on the Marcella Project Facebook page or on every other platform of social media as Jackie Reese, R-O-E-S-E. Have a great day.